Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, a podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the research process of the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series I am developing. And with that, uh, I've recently realized that I didn't have enough uh, of a foundation or, or really any information regarding not only the Negro League, the Negro League, excuse me, but black Americans in Brooklyn in general. And I reached out to the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City. And Dr. Raymond Doswell, who's the curator there, got back in touch with me and, and uh, gave me uh, numerous people to talk to. And one of the people that, uh, that he got me in touch with is producer Brian Winnett, who's working on his own similar period piece, uh, but this is regarding the Negro League. So uh, with that, we'll welcome producer Brian Winnett onto the program. How are you doing, Brian? Uh, I'm doing very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, absolutely. And, and what I usually start with uh, with everybody uh, regarding uh, them getting on the podcast, obviously yours isn't Brooklyn-centric, but that doesn't make it an extremely interesting project. Now, uh, re- in regards to your, your baseball roots, your, the foundation of your interest in the sport, uh, where does that stem from? I think playing for me as a kid was any sport. Like, that was always something where I was, like, really allowed to excel and just, like, find myself as a kid and have fun as a kid. And I wasn't so into school because it always got in the way of me trying to play. <laughs> so, um I, when I say excel, I, I was never, you know, I was never on the all-star teams. I was never, you know, I was really skinny. I was really little. But uh, I always saw the game in a different way. And um, I could always get in people's heads. So um, so uh, if you want a story, uh, I remember I remember when I was like 12 years old pitching in the last game of the World Series, our uh, all-star number one pitcher got hurt. And I remember... I pitched like five and two thirds innings, and um, and uh, in the last batter, I was so nervous. Or the last inning, I was so nervous to throw the first pitch in the last inning. And when I threw the ball, uh, it was like way out high and outside for a ball. And uh, this kid swung and missed, and I realized he was more nervous than me. And so. <laughs> so the next pitch is in the same place. I end up striking out the side to, like, win the World Series. And when you're 12, that is the World Series. And then I walk off the mound like it's nothing. And, um, uh, you know, and then my catcher t- tackles me, <laughs> you know, and we all dogpile. So that was, like, baseball but was, like, one of my greatest early child memories where it's just, like, I don't know. There's just something about it. There's just something about that feeling that yeah. uh, that sticks with you for the rest of your life. And I, I certainly uh, got that feeling at some point in my life. And uh, it's just that the game just it takes you over. And but regards to storytelling, you were saying if you wanted a story, and we that's that's what we're all about here on Bedford uh-huh. Sullivan. We're about collecting stories. So where when did you first become interested in the in narrative storytelling and in, in, in the uh, script writing and and uh, either television shows or just the movies in general. Well, it wasn't it wasn't until I was in my twenties, uh, early twenties. I was actually living in London, and I get uh, you know that's the time where a, a young man will be looking what they want to do with their life, and um, I got on a show called Wit as an extra, and I was just like uh, with Emma Thompson, directed by Mike Nichols. 
And um, I was just like accepted there and called back. And it's like, I figured that I'd end up, uh, you know, like film, there might just be a place for me. So um, I started looking into Joseph Campbell and Robert McKee and just started learning everything I can. And um, the one thing about baseball or sports in general is that that was the one thing, you know, in storytelling where I get really emotional. Like, mm-hmm. if I saw Love of the Game, I was bawling. I was crying. And it was yeah. like, it went on a, a little long, but it like, it just held me. And I, and I was crying by the end of it. Or it's like, you know, when Ray Bork won the Stanley Cup with the Colorado Avalanche, um, you know, I played hockey in high school and, and uh, refereed ice hockey to pay my way through college. But when Ray, when Ray Bork, won the Stanley Cup, I started bawling because it's just such a great story. You know, this guy played so many years, and finally he gets his one taste of glory. And I don't know, I just feel like as a writer, you have to have, you know, you've got to be emotional about stuff. And I just feel like uh, I always wanted to do a baseball or a hockey or, you know, something, something sports-related because I felt like I'd be able to connect to the material emotionally. That's, that's, a, that's a great answer. And uh, before we move on to uh, what you've collected regarding the Negro Leagues, because I know you've been working directly with uh, the Negro League Baseball Museum regarding this matter, uh, we actually have a phone call from the Los Angeles region, and, and I want to bring this person on to see who we got going. Really? Hello, hello you're here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast. Hello, hello there. Well, somebody from the 310 area code was calling in, and uh, I, I turned the microphone on. You you are live on air right now. I well, guess I'm uh, off the hook. I guess you're off the hook. <laughs> uh, and, and later I'll tell you uh, exactly who what the phone number that was. But um, regarding the Negro Leagues and and, uh, and Rube Foster is, is a character that we'll obviously get into. But but what is the first thing? That made you, that just dawned on you. What was the first moment that you said this needs to be told in narrative story form? Um, I think it was for me. Like, do you mean me personally, or I yeah, guess when, I, when, when did you first have the inspiration and, and and that light bulb go off in your head that said this is what needs to be done? I mean, I have always wanted to. Um, I've always wanted to do a sports project and I've always wanted to do a baseball movie, you know, and I thought about doing it about a pitcher. Um, but, um, uh, what ended up happening is, is, uh, I, I heard about, uh, this player named cool Papa bell who was like, uh, the fastest player to ever play baseball period. You know, he, um, he could round the bases in 12 seconds flat. Jesse Owens, the Olympian um, from his era, refused to ba- to race him around the uh, you know around the base pass. Uh, Satchel Paige would say, um, "Cool Papa Bell is so quick he can flip the light switch and be under the covers by the time the light goes out." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I've always loved the strategy part of baseball, the bunting, the speed, the you know not just to get up there and slug it but like the, the National League kind of style of small ball, you know. And uh, when this project starts, you're in that kind of dead ball era, you know, before Babe Ruth. And, you know, we get into that as the series goes along. But, you know, 
um, so anyway, I, I'm looking through all these all these pads and pads of paper that for like the last 10 years I've written this idea on or that idea on, and uh, I come across something that says make a make a show about a leadoff hitter of a baseball team, and like and like that was it. And I realized like this was something that I've and I wrote that like maybe five or six or seven years ago, and then and I realized that this was something that was calling me. That's been calling me and I need to get into it. Now the project went way far away from Cool Papa Bell from there, even though he's a character. But that was like the inspiring idea. Well, that's uh, that's perfect. Uh, cool Papa Bell is uh, just all the legend uh, we, we've heard. And, and that line was uh, basically sums it up. Uh, you know, it, it's such a, what I've always liked about that line is how visual of an idea that is, you 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 get exactly what he's saying with how fast somebody can do. Yeah. So, um, so so you know, straying away from Cool Papa Bell, what are some of the surprise storylines that you that you have found that, uh, in general, you know, people who who are into baseball history and who have gotten into the Negro Leagues, what are some of the, some of the characters that you found that we might not know that much about. Um, well, I think I think one's Pop Lloyd, who was actually uh, he was at, he actually ended up playing for the Brooklyn Royal Giants uh, when Nat Strong took him from from Rube Foster's team, who, who I'm going to get into pretty shortly here. Rube Foster, he's like the main guy, um, but uh, Pop Leonard was uh, Honus Wagner said it was. Uh, it was an honor to be compared to him. He was the best shortstop of his era, um, Negro Leagues or otherwise. Uh, so that's one. There's a guy named Slim Jones who was, uh, he battled Satchel Paige in Yankee Stadium in the greatest Negro League game ever played. And um, he was slated to be, you know, the next Satchel Paige. Um, and, uh, and, um, he ended up selling his overcoat for like a fifth of vodka or something one night and died of pneumonia 48 hours later. So it's like you get these incredibly like human, like little, just little stories of life and how light, how like, I mean, this is life for these guys, you know, it's not just baseball, you know, they're living in a disenfranchised state and a lot of them are really poor and, and uh, you know, cause that's, that's just the way it was. I mean, right. So, um, but I think Rube Foster, after the initial Cool Papa Bell, you know, impetus to start the project, Rube Foster was really the one who stuck out. He was called the father of Negro League Baseball. He's the one who um, co-founded the league. And, um, you know, the great thing, the great thing about the museum is that it goes like in a timeline of history. Mm-hmm. And it used to be like anybody who could, like back in the 1800s, anybody who could wind their own baseball was considered a superior being. And so that's how this script starts, with Rube Foster as a, as a six-year-old winding his own baseball to kind of, to kind of uh, zone out from his, his troubled family. And, and uh, talk about a, a little bit about that troubled family. Well, that's, that's the thing. Um, you know, there's there's very little research on this or who these people were, and trust me, I tried, you know, but mm-hmm. but um, there's very little research. So 
this trouble, there's like a, I don't know, there's like a, so you try to be as historically accurate as you can, but when you know the bigger story, um, you kind of have to set some stuff up. And so, you know, his father was a minister. Like, that was true. Um, but Rube Foster, you know, he, he ends up dying at the age of 41. But for the last six years of his life, he was in an insane asylum. And uh, nobody really knows why. Um, there's theories out there that said, you know, somebody sprung a gas leak trying to kill him and somebody saved him from the hotel. But, you know, because people were jealous of his success. Right. Um, so, but then other people will say, uh, and, and then the gas, even though it didn't kill him, it drove him crazy. But um, I chose to, you know, and then other people say, you know, he had like an STD or something like that, you know. So there's always rumors around, but um, nobody really knows the truth. But, like, I've had experience with people with mental illness, like, in my own life, and I've had it in my, like, right in front of my eyes. Like, I won't even get into it, but I've seen some stuff, you know. And so I decided to use this as an opportunity, and this is like the artist part, to kind of show the roots of, or what can be the roots of, um, of like mental, of like a, you know, a, a mental disease. Right. You know? So, so, in terms of the writing process, when you start gathering all this material, where where do you begin? Do you first do an outline, or is, or do you feel like you you just need to go and find the characters through writing? Um, for this project, I yeah. flew out to the museum and I just started researching. I just started re- researching everything. I started researching stuff on the internet, and that's 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 just not enough, you know. There's that yeah. saying: it's if uh, what is an author if not an authority on their subject. So uh, the Internet wasn't nearly enough. So really, I had to go out to the museum. And, uh, you know, I met with everyone there because, because I wanted to make sure no one else was doing what I was doing and, you know, make sure I have, like, exclusive, like, interest with them and everything like that. But really, the, the biggest thing that came out of visiting the museum was just uh, all of the... Um, all of the research they've done there. You know, the museum right. starts with, uh, you know, you sit down in this in this theater, and it starts with like an African American guy in uniform singing the national anthem before a game, and that's just like, here are like a disenfranchised people, totally like systematically cut out economically from, you know, the world around them, and here they are singing the national anthem before the game. And it's just like, that's kind of like reliance and the self-respect and like everything that I see in, inside the light, like the, it was all summed up in like, like that one image. It's like, we don't care if you hate us, like we're still singing the anthem, like we're here. This is our way to be Americans. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, I think baseball certainly had a lot to do with that feeling that you described and, um, you know, since we got connected, obviously uh, your project isn't Brooklyn-centric, but, but you've uh, been inspired to check out, uh, do some research regarding uh, Brooklyn and the Negro League history. What are some of the uh, things you found other than uh, uh, the uh, Nat Strong, the shortstop? 
Well, Matt Strong was actually uh, the owner of the Brooklyn Royal Giants, and um, it was his poaching in 1917. It was his, they used to call it poaching when you when you take like a free agent, right? Because there was no there was no reserve clause. They would have had it if they could have, but there was no reserve clause in Negro League baseball. So, um, I'm especially sorry, I'm you, on on the name again. What what was the name again? Of the, who, the shortstop? Yeah. Uh, Pop Lloyd. John Henry Pop, Pop Lloyd. Yeah, and, um, you know, he had won a couple, before the Negro League started, he had won a couple championships with uh, Rube Foster's team, the Chicago American Giants, um, which he founded after being the best pitcher in baseball from, like, 1902 to, like, 19... Tell, basically until he retired, uh, Rube Foster actually founded his own team with uh, the partnership of John Shorling, who was Charles Comiskey's, uh, I think, son-in-law. And, and so the Chicago American Giants played in the old Chicago White Sox part, uh, baseball park. So Pop Lloyd was coached by Nat Strong, and that was one of the, that was one of the things where, like, where uh, Rube Foster was like, you know what, we got to stop this. we got to get, like, a real league, um, you know, so that this doesn't happen because Pop, Pop Lloyd is too much to lose. I mean, imagine losing Honus Wagner, right? you know? Exactly. Um, exactly. So, and then, and then later um, there were the, the Brooklyn Eagles, I think, were bought by Abe and Effa Manley, and they became the Newark Eagles. Uh, because they merged them with the club from Newark. They merged two clubs. And uh, the Manleys are interesting characters. Uh, Abe actually let his wife, Effa, run the league, uh, run the team, and she would use her womanly charms to uh, uh, get players to play with them. So (laughs) there's there's some characters, you know. It's not all, it's not all heroes and, and everything like that. I mean, there's a lot of gray area of what went on in these in these leagues. Exactly. Uh, and uh, you know, on that note, uh, speaking of, of the leagues and, and the Negro leagues, uh, we have a special guest on our program. Uh, he is the curator of the uh, Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City, and that is Dr. Raymond Doswell. How you doing, Doctor? I'm well. How are you? Hello, Brian. Hey, how's it going, Ray? Pretty good. Well, pretty thank good. you very much for thank you very much for calling in. And the first thing uh, that, that I'm curious about is uh, how you got into the line of work of being the curator of the museum. Oh well, um, I'll try to give you the short version. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a teacher by training. I grew up in the St. Louis area. Had a chance to train as a teacher, um, but before getting a full-time teaching job, I had opportunities to do internships. And I actually um, was out in California uh, and learned about public history, uh, which is museums, archives, and all of that. Uh, Came back to St. Louis to teach, but got offered a chance to go to graduate school to learn all about all that stuff. And then um, worked towards uh, getting an internship as part of my master's degree. Um, Found out about the baseball museum here in Kansas City. they were just getting started and uh, looking for internship opportunities. They weren't ready to have an intern. I ended up going to Smithsonian, finishing my work there, coming back to California to graduate, and then started looking for jobs, wrote back to the baseball museum. They said, well, we don't have a curator. Would you be interested? <laughs> so 
I've been here since 1995, and um, wow. and my role has evolved from um, as curator. My primary role is taking care of collections and the exhibits. At most larger museums, there's a curator whose primary job is really to do research and interpretation, and then have someone else put the pictures on the wall and things like that. So I'm kind of a one-man shop here, unfortunately, uh, but. Um, it allows me to dabble in a lot of different things, and um, I also work with the education programs and things like that, and help filmmakers, writers, television folk, uh, uh, as well as the, the sixth, sixth grader who's doing a National History Day project. Oh, well, and, and us uh, writers and filmmakers certainly appreciate that work. And, uh, you know, uh, Brian was giving me a little background about you. It, you know, what do these players' lives personally mean to you? Having done now, now being so invested in the uh, the museum, what what is what? Is, where are you in, in terms of uh, what they mean personally to you? Well, um, I try to think still more, more in a professional vein, but as someone who is a who considers himself a student of American history, uh, they're fascinating. Uh, and they're more human than I think people understand. Uh, it's real easy with baseball to romanticize a game. In many respects, we're guilty of that here at the museum. Um, but baseball is extremely romantic, sometimes to its detriment. Um, and in respect with the Negro Leagues in particular, um, they can get over-romanticized to the point of suggesting that every black player was just as good or equal to every white player. Now, that frankly isn't true, but they were pretty darn good. And I think also what's important to understand uh, in relationship to uh, two things. One, understanding the Negro Leagues is part of understanding African-American history in general and American history. Two, that uh, baseball is not in a vacuum away from American history, and baseball uh, is certainly intertwined with all the the ups and downs of America, especially in the, in the last century. And so um, you can't separate them. You have to look at them in parallel, and then, and then we get a broader story uh, from that. What it allows us to do is allow for this history not to be just something that baseball fans can embrace, not just be something that people who are studying African-American history can embrace. It's something for everyone. It's everyone's history. Uh, and then it, and that continues to make it relevant for today because there are lessons to be learned out of it. There, you can look at this history and, and, and dive right into labor and immigration issues, for example. Uh, you can look at this history, obviously, and deal with race relations issues, as well as business and commerce, uh, just to name a few. Yes. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, if I could, um, that just makes it so easy for a writer to to research and like find where the story is. You know, just the way that's set up like that. And um, it is. You see, like you know, all these Negro League players fought in World War One, and then after World War One or during World War One, there was like a great migration going up north for a bunch of African Americans. And then when all the white people got back from World War One, they all wanted their jobs back. So then, you know, there was there was race wars. But um, the thing is, is that like I wouldn't do any period piece unless I could relate it to what's going on today. And I found like the economic disenfranchisement was something that 
that, you know, that I've seen happening slowly over since I've been born in 1979, you know, as a middle class shrinks. And um, I really think that for this next generation, um, classism is going to be the new racism. And I think, I think Rube Foster, in a way, made this economic sanctuary for African Americans where like 80% of all the of all the money coming in was like got back to the African American community. So you see in like Kansas City, like at 18th and Vine, like where the museum is, you can like even back then it was you know built up and they'd have music and it was like for me it was really like this story is about self reliance. You know people people are are being told you know they can't have this they're less than this. And people just doing it anyway, taking the right, taking the power, and rising up just to, you know, just to raise their families, you know, which is, which, uh, that to me is the, the, the story of Rube Foster, just someone who, who beat all the odds, and someone who came around at a time when newspapers were calling for a Moses to lead the black baseball player out of, you know, out of the wilderness, so to speak, so... You know, people say, like, you know, in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, 1910s even, like, baseball missed out on all this, you know, great stuff. But baseball didn't miss out on anything. Like, they were there. They were playing. They changed the game. Rube Foster was a pitching coach for John McGraw and taught Christy Matthewson uh, the screwball. They called it the fadeaway back then. And then, you know, they dominated. Um, you know, Negro League players were going – to Latin America and Japan in the 20s and 30s, and, and while the love for the game was already there, they were building it up and teaching them how to play, and then you see, you know, Roberto Clemente come out of that. And I mean, these guys are treated like heroes when they go overseas or something like that. So it's just, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredibly human story and uh, one of perseverance. And anybody who's been, like, I don't know, abused, I guess is the word, I think can, can relate to the kind of perseverance and self-reliance that is shown by, uh, by, by the people in this series, in this time of history. Yeah, it, it, it's very, very interesting, and, and I certainly wish you the best of luck with it. Now, now Raymond, um, in terms of those stories, what are what are some of your favorite stories that you found being the curator of, of the Negro League Baseball Museum? Uh, just one in particular that you can think of off the top of your head that, that really uh, hit home for you. Well, um, one that I enjoy telling people when they come to the museum is not so. It kind of shows one the vastness of the popularity of baseball in the community, and then how baseball brings desperate groups together. There's a small article that we clipped that was part of a of an article that was in the Kansas Historical Journal when we were building a museum and we put up in the museum. And basically it's from Wichita, 1925. And this isn't so much Negro Leagues. This is a black team in Wichita called the Monrovians, which was actually more of an exhibition team. And they played games in and around Wichita. There wasn't a league team in Wichita per se. But they played black teams. They played white teams. You know, all comers, including occasionally the professional Negro Leagues would come through Wichita and play them as well. But in June of 1925, this particular team was able to schedule a game against a local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, in fact, it was Klan Lodge Number 6. 
in Wichita. <laughs> and so, um, and the newspaper writes the story announcing the game, and, and it says, you know, that, um, you know, they they see this, this is different. This is kind of strange, you know. Uh, but it turned out to be a great game. The Monrovians won 10-8, and there were no issues. Now, without getting too deep into it, there's a, there's a history of the Klan at that time that offers you the background to understanding what the coup de Klan were and their political clout in a community like Wichita, which is really part of the essence of that story. Uh, but at the same time, here's baseball. Here are two groups that the irony of the game is not lost on the reporting in the newspaper as well as in the community, whatever role the Klan has in that community. And yet it brought those groups together. Yes, yeah, that's that's amazing to hear. Uh, you know, it just obviously right when you said the Ku Klux Klan, it was like, oh, whoa, that's that's yeah, it, it, it's something that sticks out to you. Indeed, and you know, and and um, um, baseball had that power. It was very popular in the communities, and and so and for America, for African Americans as well as other American immigrants, it was part of becoming American. You know, and uh, although African Americans, one could say, had already earned that right, um, uh, it was certainly not shown to them. And, and baseball, among other institutions, uh, was one way of doing that. And so um, they proved that they were equally as American as members of the Klan who would claim to be otherwise as well. So, Right, right, exactly. Well, uh, we don't have too much time left, uh, but, but Dr. Raymond Doswell, I, I very much appreciate you calling, and I, I especially appreciate uh, all the connections that you, you've opened up for me. Um, because, and I, you, you nailed it when you said everyone's history, and it's something that that I, you know, I, I've just recently realized that as I was researching Brooklyn and as I was researching uh, the Dodgers that I was missing this this entire element. Uh, of my own history, like you said, e- even though, uh, you know, to an extent, though, as as a white person in this in this uh, country, I personally could never know or or get exactly what it's like to be a black man in this in this society, and what it's been like to be a black man in society over the course of the last four to five hundred years. And so as much information as I can collect, I, I need to collect that because I don't have personally have any context regarding that. And so I, I very much appreciate uh, your, your uh, openness to, to this and uh, helping me out uh, to, to get as much context as possible regarding the story I'm trying to tell. Well, that's what the museum is here for. And uh, I encourage folks like you and Brian to keep pushing these stories. It's one way of getting the history out. Uh, uh, but hopefully, you know, film and television will help introduce the topic um, primarily. And um, we're grateful for the success of some of these other projects like 42. And uh, But they need to be successful in order to keep interest in the history alive. So keep keep pushing. And um, the museum is here to help anyone who wants to really tell the story and tell it the right way. Now, I, thank you, but before I let you go, you're just bringing up uh, something that, that popped into my head in terms of the future for African Americans in baseball, and, and uh, they've been talking about, a lot of people have been talking about how uh, it, it, it's, it, it, it's a lot less than it used to be. Uh, there's a rich baseball history uh, for African Americans, and yet it's dwindled down to less than 10% in terms of uh, 
black Americans in the in the sport. We, uh, you know, a lot of the the the, uh, the darker colored players are are now from the Dominican and from from the uh, the Latin American countries. Uh, and I know that baseball has the RBI program. Well, in terms of the education that you talked about, what are some of the things that the museum is doing to try to get, get the, the game back into the community? Our primary role is to tell the history of, of the game in the community. And so uh, our primary role is just being here is, more, is right. the most important thing and continue to educate teachers and others uh, about that history, and we do the best we can through exhibits and outreach in that regard. Uh, it would be too much for us to take on the burden of trying to get more blacks in the game as much as we like that. And we need a whole other show really to dive into uh, a lot of the nuance of that, but um, and but we could. There's quite a bit to talk about there. I, I know I, for one, uh, would love to see more participation but if we are just getting, if we have more kids going to college through baseball and becoming doctors, lawyers, and teachers, I prefer that even more. And at the same time, too, I think uh, we ought to, we want to be mindful of not creating any false dichotomies with uh, our, our Latin brothers. There's a lot, and if you study Negro Leagues, you'll see there's a, there's a lot more in common with these cultures than they are different um, in that regard, and they should, they should boast of rich part of the British past as well. So, um, and I said, that's a whole other show. I'm glad to do that show if you want. But uh, we're excited to be able to be here, uh, support groups like RBI, support anyone, colleges, anyone who wants to learn more about this history, and they'll see where we've, where we've been in order to move forward. Well, if you bring up... Go ahead. You bring, yeah, you bring up something interesting, which is uh, what a lot of people don't know is that a lot of the players that ended up in the professional Negro Leagues did play college baseball. Mm-hmm. And that's like, uh, you know, that's something that you, that you might not think. But, you know, it was another way for, for you know, an underserved population to get, to get um, education, which is power, really. And so... And that's the, yeah, that's uh, true, especially t- with the... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but... I want to touch on something that Ray was saying earlier. Uh, you know, part of the romanticism that's around, like, the players before Jackie Robinson is like, oh, they didn't get a play, nobody got to know who they were. But, you know, they were part of this. You know, it takes time. I mean, it takes time for an individual's consciousness to change. But if you're talking about a whole society, it takes time for a society to change. So these Pop Lloyds, these, uh, you know, Buck Leonard's, these Mule Suttles, these people who were doing it day in, day out, year in, year out, uh, you know, it took decades, but they were doing their part in helping change, you know, how... African Americans were seen specifically in the game of baseball. So I don't know. I just wanted to mention that because that, I think that's one of the romantic things where it's like you couldn't be like, oh, what a shame, what a pity. But it's like it's just life, you know. It's just how life happens. It's just how it goes on. Yeah. Yeah, that's it, great. Uh, Raymond, I, I know you were about to touch on something as well. Uh, if you wanted to oh, I just wanted to before, just like, add no. to Brian. Wanted to just add quickly to Brian's comment uh, that you know we 
Grambling being in the news lately and some of the issues they're going through, it was some of those colleges that really was an incubator for a lot of athletes, particularly baseball players. And the special Negro Leagues had connections to places like Prairie View and Houston and in places in Arkansas where they did spring training. And uh, so uh, there is that's that's a, another part of uh, the connectedness of this history to broader African American history. Excellent. Dr. Raymond Doswell, thank you very, very much for joining us on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. And we don't have too much time left uh, for the, the whole show, but Brian, before we go, uh, I, I wanted to. Uh, there, there was a story about a guy who who ended up segueing over to basketball, and I was I was hoping you could touch on that a bit. Oh yeah, I, actually, if Ray's still there, I think he'll remember the guy's name. Um, but, uh, you know, part of the show for the African-Americans, uh, was, uh, you know, a show called shadow ball. Is Ray still there? Yeah. I'm here. I don't think he is. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, I'm here. I'm you, here. You know, the first baseman I'm talking about that you have on in the museum who ended up, well, anyway, the well, shadow there, ball. Well, quickly, there's a number of, uh, there are a number of players who also played other sports, um, and uh, the Harlem Globetrotters basketball team, uh, Abe Saperstein, uh, was the owner and one of the early organizers, worked with other promoters in baseball, and they shared a lot of things. Um, so there are a lot of players who also play basketball and not who also play with the Harlem Globetrotters, but the most famous was Reese Goose Tatum. And Tatum has uh, most recently been inducted into the National Basketball Hall of Fame. Tatum was one of the... Uh, for the for the Glowtrotters basketball team, uh, came up with a lot of the uh, the basketball um, uh, tricks and antics for the for the Glowtrotters. He preceded Metal Black Woman uh, with the basketball team, and he did some of the same tricks in baseball with the Indianapolis Clowns baseball team. Um, and um, so that was the, the shadow ball pantomime. Uh, tricks uh, that were done with the baseball um, uh, pregame. And the Clowns, again, that's a whole other show, just explaining with yeah. the Clowns baseball team <laughs> and their significance um, and and their unique role in Negro Leagues. But Tatum uh, was an outstanding athlete and outstanding entertainer. And uh, like I mentioned, was recently inducted into the National Basketball Hall of Fame, Basketball Hall of Fame, for his uh, um, contributions to basketball. Well, just so people people know, shadow ball was a game that they play without a ball, but they were so good at pretending that they had a ball that they'd throw the ball around the infield and it would trick the audience's eyes and it becomes and it becomes one of the most popular parts of the sports pregame. So that's I just want to give a definition there of what shadow ball is. But also then you'd have uh, you know you'd have rivalries between the people who took the game seriously and the people who would clown around like that. So. There's that friction that comes into play too, because you know a lot of people are far too serious. <laughs> Indeed. Well, Doctor, I, I just wanted to also state that that uh, you know since I thanked you a couple times, I, I wanted to to let you know I wasn't trying to rush you off. I just wasn't sure your timeline. <laughs> oh no, we're good. <laughs> Very good. Well, we we are in jeopardy uh, of about five minutes away from actually getting cut off. Uh, so, uh, I, I, and uh, on another podcast, I always leave with the last word, and this is the first time that we've uh, we've really had um, uh, by the end of the show more than one person on. So, 
uh, Brian, I, I'm, I'm going to go that way with you first. Uh, what, what is something you'd like to uh, state before we go about your project and, and about uh, the Negro Leagues in general? Well, I just want to say, uh, first of all, thank you to, to Dr. Doswell. Without his help and support and guidance and, like, even-keeled view uh, on the situation, uh, it, it wouldn't be what it is, you know. And this is... You know, who knows if this will ever get made into a TV series, but the, the process of going through it has been, has been wonderful. And, um, and uh, I couldn't have done it without Ray or the help of the, or the, help of the museum. So I just wanted to say that. Thanks, Ray. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and, and Ray, if there's anything else you'd uh, like to state before we, uh, we have to leave. Well, we just want to encourage folks to, uh, if you can, come visit us, come learn about the history uh, here in Kansas City at the museum, or, or check out our Facebook page and you learn about maybe even traveling exhibits that might be closer to them that they can check out and learn the history. And there's still some players still alive that are around. Um, if you're not trying to hawk them for autographs, they're worth listening to. So uh, look for them as well. And uh Enjoy baseball. It's, it's still a great game. It's still America's game. I don't care what they say about football. And um, yeah. and this is a big part of it. So. And yeah, I, I personally, to make, sure that we, to make sure that we don't uh, get cut off, I'm going to have to limit this to two minutes, uh, really. But uh, speaking of which, what what is what have your uh, opinions been of this World Series? It's been a bizarre one, right? Brian, I'll start with you. I think it's been great. I like it when things go wrong. You know, it's like, <laughs> I think it's more fun that way. Uh, you know, I think the call in game three was, was the right call from the umpire's angle. And um, I think uh, I, I've always been a Boston fan, but it's hard for me to root against any National League team. I'm a National League guy through and through, unless, uh, unless it's the Dodgers, because, you know, I'm a Giants fan. Right. Well, and, and, uh, we are going to have uh, – uh, the former San Francisco Giants owner, Peter McGowan, on the show. Uh, so that's going to be exciting for you. And uh, this, this coming Thursday, ironically on Halloween, uh, uh, something Duke Snyder once said uh, he despises because of black and orange, the Giants' colors. Ray, uh, out, out in Kansas City, Ray, out in Kansas City, uh, are you guys generally pushing for the St. Louis Cardinals, or are you, just, are you generally an AL uh, um, uh, city? I can speak for myself. I am an unabashed Cardinals fan. I am from St. Louis. I am unapologetic. Um, I do not want this series to go any further than game six now. And um, I've been a Cardinals fan all my life, so I have confidence that they will do it. So. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Ray, I'm a, I'm a Mets fan, and so I, I personally, this is the one time I really can't root for, for the NL team. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, and plus it would be bittersweet for me being such a, a Beltron fan uh, to see him win in the in the, in the Redbird jersey. Okay, yeah. and I got two days left to uh, to live in the glory of my Giants still being the current World Series champions. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Raymond, I, I, before we go, and I, I do need to cut the show off. Uh, I've only passed through Kansas City, going out to out to Colorado. And so uh, you will certainly be one of my first phone calls when I when I arrive in the city. We love to have you, and it's worth the visit. 
All right, everybody. That's our that's our show, everybody. Brian, thank you very very much for, thank for you. giving us all your insight and talking about your project. And and uh, Dr. Raymond Doswell, again, thank you so much. And, and everybody, uh, next time you're in Kansas City, make sure to visit the Negro League Baseball Museum. All right, that's our show, everybody. Like I said, catch us Thursday when Peter McGowan, the former San Francisco Giants owner, will discuss uh, not only his uh, his time out in San Francisco, but also talk about being a New York Giants fan growing up in Manhattan. That's our show, everybody. Take care.